Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 40. This is the word of our God. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. When they had finished the days as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother did not know it, but supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now so it was that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for uh, this glimpse into the life of our Lord. And we pray that we would have both reverence for it and understanding of what it is that your spirit would teach us here today. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have four Gospels. Two of them give an account of the birth of Christ, and both of them then give us a single childhood story. Uh, Matthew, we don't always think of it as a childhood story. We so closely connect the wise men to the events of Christmas Day uh, that we tend to just lump that all together. Um, But as I mentioned last week, the wise men didn't come to the manger They seem to have appeared later. Now, I think last week I had a brain freeze and I said two to three years later. And really, it's more accurate to say it was probably six months to two years later. Um, So a little bit less of a a gap than than I mistakenly said. Um, But still a, a period of time there. And then we have the wise men come. Matthew has this intention to to show us the Gentiles coming to Christ right at his birth. Uh, Luke does this, a similar thing. We looked at that last week, but he does it through Simeon's prophecy of the light to the Gentiles. Uh, Matthew also has this intention then of showing the, the consequent flight to Egypt and Christ's childhood, his toddler days in Egypt, fulfilling what Israel didn't do in serving God. Uh, But Luke jumps over all of that. 
Luke takes us from his circumcision and his presentation at the temple, and it jumps us right to the age of 12, when in Jewish custom of the day, uh, he would have been counted as a young adult man in Israel. Uh, we, we think of the phrases in, uh, in our modern day uh, bar mitzvah for a boy and bat mitzvah, mitzvah for a girl. Uh, and uh, I, haven't, I haven't seen that they used that language back then, but that was the basic idea that that all sprang out of, that at 12 years old, the boy became a man. Up to that point, uh, only the men of Israel had to attend once a year for the Passover in person. Women could, but they didn't have to. Children could, but they didn't have to. Uh, So it tended to be the most faithful people who did that. And we're told that Mary and Joseph went up each year. They were faithful believers. And so Mary went, even though she didn't have to, and they brought their children, even though they didn't have to. But Luke is showing us here the year that Jesus had to. And I think that's significant because when we reflect on a a 12-year-old, this this about-to-be-a-teenager, There are certain things that might happen in the life of a church, and they're just done because that's what's done, and we might expect to see something different in the parking lot. We we don't tend to have a specific age that we do profession of faith for our children in this church. I I actually think that's a good thing. It requires uh, more uh, where they are at rather than a specific age. But, but a lot of churches, and most churches I've been a member of over the years, had a certain age, somewhere around 12 to 14 or 15, where uh, you maybe you take a profession of faith class uh, with the pastor or someone, and then you make a profession of faith and you start taking communion. Uh, and when you do that, there are many very sincere professions of faith. And there are some which... Maybe as as the fellow teenager, you're looking at the person and thinking they're just doing it because mom and dad are saying they should do it. And even among the sincere professions of faith, then what are what are you talking about? How maturely are you acting afterwards out in the parking lot? Uh, you just professed faith in Christ and you've just taken communion for the first time. And then uh, I don't know what you go out and do. There are, things, there are things we used to do, play hide-and-go-seek in the basement because we had this big basement or climb a tree. I'm not saying those are bad things or childhood needs to be abandoned when you make profession of faith, but we, we don't always expect maturity with these events in young adult life, do we? And so what a powerful thing that Luke is going to show us, Jesus, at the equivalent of profession of faith, when he becomes a man, how seriously is he taking it? How many of the young men of Israel viewed this as a time of pride and, and pomp and uh, of, of celebration? And how does Christ approach it? What does he see it requiring of him? It's a, it's a powerful text when we think of it in that way, isn't it? Because Christ says, well, if I'm a man now, then I need to get to work. 
if I'm a man now, I need to seriously think about what I believe. And where do I do that? Well, I need to sit at the feet of the best scholars that our faith has to offer. Those are powerful things. And we don't expect it always, even of sincere believers, to see such things. The equivalent for us, you know, if mom and dad, I'm not saying any of you parents ever did this, or that my parents, they did it a couple times, forgot me at the church building. Usually when they forgot me at the church building, it was because I was off in the basement hanging out with other teenagers and they had two cars and they both assumed. Anyway, they weren't bad parents. But if they were to come back, what did they find me doing? Would they have found me sitting with all the elders of the church asking questions? No. Uh, It's an astonishing thing, isn't it? We have this story here, Mary and Joseph. They're not bad parents. They, They came to the Passover and then they started going home and they were from way up north. And uh, when you traveled to Jerusalem for the feast days, you traveled as a village. If all the men have to go to Jerusalem, you might as well travel together. Safety, if there's any robbers on the road, and just companionship and fellowship. And and recall that Mary and Joseph, when Jesus is 12, probably have anywhere from four to six other children uh, that are younger than 12. Uh, because we know he had at least three half-brothers younger than him. And at least two sisters, because at a certain point, um, the the men say from Nazareth, uh, aren't aren't his sisters our wives? And it's in the plural. So there's at least probably five children younger than Christ. You can imagine, then, why Mary and Joseph would be okay thinking, huh, Teenage Jesus is hanging out with his cousins. Some aunt or uncle has an eye on him. We don't have to go. He's, he's not coming up and saying, are we there yet? Every five minutes. So we're okay with this situation. We're going to wait until we get to the campsite. And then when everyone's breaking off from their cousins and uncles and aunts and settling down in their families, we'll, we'll have him come to us. And they get there and discover that no one knows where Jesus is. So they go back. We read it's a three-day, we read of them going back and then on the third day finding him. And that's probably an inclusive three days, meaning it's probably day one they traveled. Day two they traveled back. Day three they found him, rather than it being three full days in Jerusalem. But still, can you imagine even five hours of not knowing where your 12-year-old was? That's... That's crazy. That, that's terrifying. But they find him. They find him in the midst of the elders. What is Luke including this passage for? Is it just to show us Jesus the good boy? Is it just to show us what his personality was like at the age of 12? Or is it just a random story? Of course, none of those things are the case. Luke, again, is the gospel of certainty. He wants us to be certain of things. And so what is it he wants us certain of here? I think we can say with Luke chapter 2, 40 through 52, that Luke wants us to be certain about at least uh, two things. Something about his deity and something about his humanity. 
something about Christ's deity and something about Christ's humanity. As I've prayed about that this week, I think we could start with this, that Luke wants us certain of Christ's divine self-awareness. He wants us to be certain that Christ knew who he was. Now, that's not always taught in the evangelical church today and hasn't always been taught throughout the history of the church. It, it is, the, it is the, the big word being orthodox, the, the traditional, the primary understanding of the church that Jesus was aware, but uh, not everyone has agreed on that. Some today argue that Christ was just ignorant of his sonship and deity until later. He, he was God, uh, but he didn't realize it until his baptism. Some have, have argued that, and others have argued that the divine hadn't yet entered into Christ. Now, now that second one is, is a blatant heresy that the, the early church rejected, um, that Christ was just a guy. And then when he was baptized, the, the Holy Spirit fell upon him and he became God as well as man. That one's a heresy of the early church. But the other's more subtle, isn't it? That Christ was God and man, but wasn't aware of being God till later. I, I think part of that comes from when you read pagan mythology. They have half God, half man, demigods, they're 50% of one and 50% of the other, and sometimes they don't know who dear old dad was until later in life. And so there's a, a lack of awareness. But that's not what the scriptures present to us. For one thing, we're not presented with Jesus Christ, 50% God, 50% man. We're presented with the eternal God, Jesus Christ, who was in the beginning with God, and was God in the beginning. And it is he who becomes flesh, so that he is 100% God, and scripturally also, he is 100% a man. He is all the essential properties, as Chalcedon, we just confessed, calls it, properties of, of being human. He's fully God and fully Man. And here in our text, we want to reflect first then on his divine self awareness. And we see the hint of this first in terms of the authority that he has. The authority that he has in this text, at the very least, tells us that he didn't become God later but already is described with the authority he has later in life. So they find him listening and asking. And one commentator makes this comment, humble Galileans like Mary and Joseph would never have ventured to intrude into such circles. And yet their son, merely 12 years old, was joining in the discussion of the learned Jewish theologians. So, so, in other words, most humble Jews 
wouldn't have dared walk up and join into the circle of the elders having a theological discussion at the, te- at the temple. They might have stood on the outskirts and listened. But here's this 12-year-old who walks right into the circle and starts engaging with it. Uh, unheard of. But it's not just that he asks questions and listens. Look at verse 47 again. We find in verse 47, And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and his answers. Meaning that verse 47 is telling us Jesus wasn't just a good Jewish boy who loved God and wanted to know more. He was all of that. Uh, It wasn't just that he sat there and listened to the elders of Israel and asked them questions. But verse 47 is telling us, even though he in a respectful and humble manner sat himself at the feet of the teachers, and even though he respectfully asked them questions so that they might teach, the way the conversation resulted was that everyone knew who was really teaching. He was clearly asking questions, and the, and the elders and teachers of Israel didn't really know how to answer some of them. They were baffled. They were trying to figure it out. And then he would say, well, <laughs> you, can, you can imagine, right? Because we have him doing this later in life. Haven't you read the scriptures? How? And, and fill in the blank. And verse 47, Luke is showing us that that was going on here. So that everyone, including the great scholars of the Jewish faith, are amazed. We might even go so far as to impute to Luke here in verse 47 this thought. That those who heard said among themselves, no one has ever spoken like this boy. That's what we read in the Gospels later, isn't it? Jesus, as a 30-year-old, a 31, 32-year-old, goes around teaching, and in the midst of the great scholars of the Pharisees and the scribes, the people all say, they've never taught like this. He teaches as one with authority and not like the rest of them. And Luke is telling us in verse 47, that was already the case at the age of 12. He already had this authority that indicates that he did not become God later. He already has the authority. But more than that, this text shows us that he's aware of it. And he's aware of it as we consider that he is aware whose son he really is. There's Mary, and she, she takes him aside, and she says, don't you know that your father and I were anxious for you? And look at his response. Didn't you know that I must be about my father's business? Now, they didn't find him fixing creaky doors at the temple uh, with, a, with a, a chisel, fixing a splintered piece of, of the high priest's chair. That would be Joseph's business. They found him teaching in the temple. 
And he reflects on that being his father's business. That is divine self-awareness. Now, some of your translations, if you're using something other than the King James or New King James, has their my father's, uh, my father's house instead of my father's business. And this isn't an issue of translating two different words that appear in different translate. It's an issue of how you translate the same word. And let me just say that those who translate it house are thinking in terms of uh, their, their biggest deci- decision in making that translation is looking at what Mary has just said. Hey, look, we were anxiously looking for you. Well, you should have known where I was, right? That, that, that seems to have some logic to it, that Jesus would say, I'm in my father's house. Isn't that the first place you look for someone in their house? And so we can understand where that translation comes from. And it's a possible translation, although it isn't the, um, the most obvious translation of that phrase in the Greek. If that's what he said, we would probably expect a different word for house, oikos, uh, which is usually used. And that's not what's used here. The, the word used here usually has to do with business or affairs. The things that relate to the father. And therefore, derivatively, one option would be house. But it's not the obvious thing. So I tend to think probably my father's work or business is a better translation, but they're both legitimate translations. All of which, though, to say, don't you see how both things are saying the same thing? Whether it's his father's house or his father's business, Jesus knows who his father is. He's in his father's house, and in his father's house, he's doing the will of the father. He's doing the will of his father. Mary and Joseph are aware that he is the Messiah. Maybe 12 years have made their memory fade a little bit. Uh, unlike the, the false gospels that are out there, uh, the, the true inspired gospels don't tell us that he was going around changing statues into real life birds. One of the false gospels talks about that. They don't uh, speak of him walking around doing miracles before the age of 30. Now, that's not to say he couldn't have. If he's fully God, he could have. Um, but... The, this gospel narrative doesn't show him doing strange miracles. So you could imagine that Mary and Joseph, after 12 years, might not think about the fact that he isn't their son as much as they used to. I'm not saying that Mary would forget being a virgin who had a baby, but 12 years make us forget things, don't they? And so... Maybe their minds are growing a little foggy, but they are aware that he's the Messiah who will sit on the throne of David. And remember that that it is his kingship of the line of David that is emphasized when he's born. And so if they were to think, well, maybe he's gone somewhere because he's the Messiah, where would they expect him to be? Probably at Herod's palace. 
but they're not realizing that part of his job as the Messiah is first to be the prophet of God, to reveal to God's people by word and spirit the will of God for their salvation, then as priest to offer himself, and third as king to rule and reign. And so they, they don't think first of him being a prophet who would be at the temple about the work of the Father declaring his will for salvation. But Jesus emphasizes that. And furthermore, he emphasizes it very powerfully with his pronoun. With his pronoun, which is my father. My father. One commentator points out that not Moses who built the tabernacle nor David, with whom God made covenant, who wanted to build the temple, nor Solomon, who built the temple, nor any of the prophets speak of God as my father. It's unheard of. And when we are taught to pray to God as father, It is in the context of our Father. But Jesus doesn't say our Father when he's talking about his own relationship with the Father. He only uses that phrase when he's teaching us how to pray. When he speaks of his relationship with the Father, it is always his personal relationship. My Father. Now that would have stood out to a Jewish ear very powerfully. Joseph and Mary don't know what to do with it. And so they ponder it without understanding what he's saying. But it's a powerful point. He is not speaking of sonship like all of us have, sons and daughters by adoption. He's speaking of being the eternally begotten son of God with the father before the worlds began. He is aware of his deity. But the text also has something to teach us about his humanity. And what it teaches us about his humanity is that Christ had a normal human development. An ordinary human development. He didn't appear in the world at the age of 30. Mark when it has him appearing at the age of 30, isn't saying he wasn't born, that he didn't have a childhood. He appeared as an infant in the womb, being born and growing up. So in one sense, the best way to think about what this text is teaching us about Christ in his human nature is what Hebrews tells us and what we reflected on in our, in our confession of faith this morning, that he was in all ways like unto us, but without sin. This passage is showing us that he was, even in how he developed as the human Christ Jesus, he was like us. He had the full range of human experience. There's this progression He increased, 
in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And this is where our minds boggle. If Christ is omniscient God, all-knowing, how can he grow in wisdom? It hurts, doesn't it? Thinking about that. My brain hurt a lot last week because I wanted to read a lot of different opinions on that. And it's painful. And so I want to encourage you with two things this morning. One is that there are doctrines in Scripture of which we must acknowledge what God tells us and then step back and acknowledge the mystery of it. Remember Deuteronomy uh, 29.29. Anyway, 29.29, thank you. I'm bad with numbers. 29.29, where the people are told, the things that belong to the Lord our God are for him. And the things he has revealed to us are for us and our children. In other words, there are things that God has not revealed. The secret things of God. And we have to acknowledge that we are finite creatures and God doesn't tell us everything. But what he does tell us, we have to accept by faith. And so when we think about several topics, one is the Holy Trinity. The history of the Christian church has said, well, we are taught in Scripture, first, that there is only one God. And then in the New Testament, clearly we are taught there are three persons who are God and are distinct. And so the Christian church has had to acknowledge one God in three persons. Can you understand that? Of course not. That's one of the secret things of God. Our finite minds have to accept what the scriptures say and know that there's going to be a limit to our ability to understand. The the other major one, then, is the God-man, Jesus Christ. Fully God, fully man. How can you be omniscient God and grow in wisdom as a man? And there's a certain extent to which we have to say, We have to accept it and can't fully comprehend it. But I do think when we look at what the the list is in verse 52, it might help us a little bit to at least have a, a vague thought to connect to this of what's being said of his human development. We're told that he developed in four areas, that there's an advancement in terms of his humanity in four ways. The first is wisdom. And we could say that that's an advancement in moral uh, moral development. Uh, the second would be in stature. It's a physical development. The third is uh, increasing in favor with God, a spiritual development. And the fourth is advancement socially in favor with men. So advancing in terms of uh, morality, wisdom, 
advancing in terms of phys- the physical body, advancement in terms of uh, spiritual relationship with God, and advancement in terms of relationship with other people. That's not a bad definition of, of the development we all need as human beings. Our humanness. It's just a struggle for us in two of those areas to see how it works with Christ. The spiritual development, increasing in favor with God the Father. What, what is there to increase? If, if Christ is God, 100% holy, and one with the Father before the worlds began, and even in his human side, he's without sin, so he's holy even as his human nature displays, then how can you advance in God's favor? Well, in a way that none of us can do. In constantly meriting the Father's good pleasure. Christ, with every action, glorifies the Father more. And their relationship, therefore, increases in the Father's delight in the Son. Now, when you and I seek this same type of development, it starts at a very different place. Because we as sinners cannot merit the Father's pleasure in and of ourselves. And so when we read of John the Baptist or back in Samuel of Samuel, in the same list, developing in terms of favor with God... When we think of ourselves growing in God's favor, we have to start with repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And that's how the Father has pleasure in us. And from there, in Christ, we continue to bring him pleasure. It's different for Christ than us. But he fulfilled as the sinless human that spiritual development as a human, gaining God's favor with every action. And then, of course, the the central one we struggle with, how can Christ, who is omniscient as God, develop in wisdom? And a, a few things connected to that. One, remember that wisdom is distinct from knowledge. It is, isn't it? Wisdom is knowledge applied. Wisdom is knowledge applied often in Scripture in terms of how we relate that knowledge to our relationships with God and men. And so, as we think of Christ developing in wisdom, we we could almost say experiential wisdom. The knowledge applied to the varying circumstances of life in a fallen world with a fallen body, right? Christ's body, although he's sinless, his body still decayed. He still had aches and pains. He still bled. How does knowledge apply in that scenario Well, Christ as a man in his human nature experiences these types of pain and suffering and loss 
in a distinct way from how he has eternally known these things in relationship with humans. Taking on flesh means Christ enters into this distinct human experience. And that requires applying knowledge wisely. And the text is telling us he advanced in that. Every time a new area of struggle came upon him, he advanced his wisdom in that area. When his siblings hated him, he had to advance in wisdom in his relationship with them. When Joseph died sometime between this text and when he was 30 years old, he had to advance in the wisdom of how to relate this grief in this fallen world. There's an advancement in experiential wisdom here. It's still beyond our comprehension, but it shows us something very important. We'll come to that in a moment, but let me just add to that. These four things found in verse 52 show us show us the humanity of Christ in the same way that his Advent accounts and the wise men accounts show us his humanity. He did not come out of the womb and say, Hello, Mary, I'm your God. The wise men didn't show up and find a six-month-old or two-year-old speaking like a 40-year-old theologian. He, in becoming man, although he was still God, experienced human development. He didn't speak at first, despite our hymn. He cried when he got hungry and when he needed to be changed. Experiences that God had never had to experience before. And that continued through his life in these four areas. Experience he has here. Wisdom, experience applied. Knowledge applied to experience, we find in verse 51. He's not wrong when he says to Joseph and Mary, as an adult Jew, I should be about my father's work, shouldn't I? I should be in my father's house, shouldn't I? And yet what does he do? He submits to them. And for now, goes home with them to Nazareth. He submits to the fact that in God's will, he is under Joseph and Mary for a time. And therefore, he submits himself to them. Advancement in these areas of his humanity. Well, let's make some brief applications then. Three things that looking at this text and seeing these two aspects is divine self-awareness, and his human advancement. What do these call on us for? The first is that we know that he is God. He knew that he was God. And us knowing that, that he knew that. (laughs) We need to be just as certain. We need to know that. That he is God. He did not become God later. 
nor was he unaware of who he was eternally. That's good news for those who need a Savior. Our Savior is the one who created all things. That's what, that's what Paul's getting at in Colossians 1. And that's what we need to draw from this. The same Savior is the very same Creator. Second, we need to know that he is exactly the prophet we need. He astonished Bible scholars in his day at the age of 12. And he has spoken to us now through his word. What do we need for salvation? What do we need to develop in our relationship with God and neighbor? We need the prophetic message of Christ, and he has given it to us in his living word. All that we need for faith and salvation. And then third, I think very importantly, as we reflect on his humanity, we need to know that he knows. We need to know that he knows. It's one thing to say, God's omniscient, he knows all things. But how do we respond to that? Don't we say, but he hasn't experienced it? That's what we tend to say in our culture and in our churches today. In our culture, we're constantly claiming that, that we are misunderstood because Someone else hasn't experienced what I have experienced. And so no one is allowed to speak into my experience unless they can prove that they've experienced the exact same thing. And then we have a thousand ways we show that no one's experienced what I've experienced. And so I alone can speak about my experience. And the the church has gotten into that. We get into that even with how we view God. God may be omniscient, the creator of the universe, the sustainer of life, but that's all very distant, we feel. And we have struggles and trials and anxieties and discouragements. And Luke 2 is saying to us what other parts of Scripture say as well, that we need to know that he knows. He doesn't just know as omniscient God. He knows as your brother who has experienced it himself. Pain and fears and anxieties, or at least the temptation for fears, and anxieties. And how has he responded? He responded by trusting the Father. But he's experienced the hardships. He experiences right here in our text, parents who misunderstand him. But the text literally says that. Didn't you know I should be here doing my father's work? And Mary and Joseph were confused. They didn't understand him. He knows what that's like. He even knows what we, I think we think we experience this more often than we do. He experienced being right and being misunderstood. We often think we're right, 
and misunderstood. He's experienced it. And he experienced it and still submitted himself to his parental authority, even though he's the eternal God and creator of Mary and Joseph. He knows. He experienced engaging with theologians and elders with respect to their office and asking and listening to them, even though it became clear that he knew more. And we think we know more. See, there's, there's no area in which we experience and Christ cannot relate to the experience. That didn't start at the age of 30. Hebrews 2.17 declaring that he in all ways was like, made like unto us yet without sin is reflecting not just on his three years as an adult walking around as a preacher. It's reflecting on 33 years of life experiences. Christ experienced a full human life. He didn't live to 70, I get that. But he he experienced all the stages, didn't he? Including a, a week in which he knew he was dying this week. He experienced it all. Richard Phillips puts it so well when he challenges us. How hollow then ring the world's complaints against our God. People are saying all the time today, lamenting in this world of woe, where is God? Why doesn't he do something? Meanwhile, he has done everything. Indeed, more than we could ever ask or imagine God has entered our world. He has walked through the dust of this earth. That's it, isn't it? As a 12-year-old who was walking through the dust of this earth so that he might walk through it with you, fully experiencing it. Let us be certain of this as we see the divine authority in the text, united with the true humanity, and then reflect on the gospel we're given. Good news of the God-man, a Savior who is not far from us, but he is near and he knows. Thanks be to God.